Well, good morning, church family. Uh, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, Acts chapter 27. And while you're turning there, I um, wanted to share a couple of thoughts with y'all. You may have noticed the, uh, the morning scriptures and the song choices at Crossroad will often complement the message. There'll be a theme, in other words, and that is, that is not an accident. Uh, Everett really works to, uh, where is he? He disappeared. There he is, okay. Everett works to, uh, to make sure that, that, the, that the, the worship service flows in a certain direction. And, um, and today we're looking at this, this unusual story of the journey that Paul took on the way from Jerusalem to Rome. And they got, they got sidetracked, to put it mildly, they actually got shipwrecked. And so there's your connection with the title of this message. Earlier we read the story in Mark's gospel, where Jesus was asleep in the boat, and there was this huge storm that, that caught all the disciples by surprise. And of course, we all know the story that Jesus slept till his disciples woke him up, and then he, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and the storm completely calmed. And it's an awesome story. And I'm so glad that it's in the Bible. However, when we experience similar storms in our own lives, we, we don't often see that same type of instantaneous deliverance from the situation. Most of the time, we probably feel more like the psalmist when we say, out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. And, and it's, it's true that God only rarely, if ever, seems to miraculously intervene in our struggles, although sometimes he does. But there's this old saying. You're probably familiar with it. Sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes what? He calms you. And here's the thing, guys. God is God when he is exercising his sovereign authority over the weather, but he is also God in the hearts of his people, enabling us to weather the storms that come. In either case, he's God. And that's the premise for our message this morning. It's with that in mind, uh, we're going to read through this story, and hopefully you'll agree that it is loaded with parallels to the Christian life. It's remarkable, I, I think, how often this, this narrative coincides with how God brings us through our own storms, and it can even mirror the story of your own initial salvation. And I also want to say this, most of the time you guys know I'm very big on textual or expository preaching. This is different. I don't usually, I, I, I am tempted sometimes to make fun of when people say, uh, you know, the David and Goliath story, and, and they're like, well, and who are the giants in your life, and that type of stuff, and it just makes me want to go, ugh, because that's not what the story's about. And in this case, I'll tell you, the story is a very straightforward of narrative, narrative, but I really feel like there are some parallels that speak so loudly to us that we ought to take a look at them. And so that's what we're doing this morning. You might, um, you might think I'm reaching. I'm just going to say that. But please just stick with me on this. I really think you're going to find it extremely encouraging, and I just ask you not to underestimate God's ability to show you something new. So even before Luke wrote this story for us, God planned for you to hear this message. Think about that. Nearly 20 centuries later, God planned for you to hear this message to remind you that he is completely worthy of our trust so I'm going to ask the Lord to get us ready for this. Uh, Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name for everybody that's here, for all those watching online, 
for those who are um, going to listen later to the sermon on the internet, I, I pray, Father, for all of us that we are good soil, that the word that is planted will take root and bear fruit, and it will bear good fruit in our lives, that people will see it, and it will glorify you. Father, we ask that you will help our hearts to be fully tuned in so that the message this morning speaks to us in such a way that we can't ignore it. And I pray, God, that you help all of us to remember that you are God, whether you calm the storm or whether you are in the storm and you're calming us, you are God. In the midst of some, some difficult losses over the last few weeks, Father, we ask that you help all of us to be prepared to hear this message and may it sink in and may it change us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. All right, as we jump into Acts 27, I want you to bear in mind that Paul has appealed to take his case before Caesar. And so Governor Festus in Jerusalem uh, agreed to send him to Rome. And so based on the, the first-person perspective here, Luke himself was actually an eyewitness to everything that, that's being written here. Okay, so beginning in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. That's a lot of big words. The next day we put in at Sidon. Now there's, there's a lot of detail, especially at the beginning of this passage. But I just want to... To help you understand, what's written here at this point is just explaining where they went as they were going. And there's also, there's a pretty good amount of nautical talk. I don't know how many of you guys are sailors besides the Platonics, but um, that's not something that, that I understand all this stuff. Um, and, and I left a lot of it out of the bulletin insert just for the sake of making things fit without y'all having to use a magnifying glass to see it. Um, so th there is a lot of geography Okay, and we're gonna we're gonna take this map in stages so you can kind of understand where they went. As you can see, um, they kind of went from uh, they started out here. Well, I can't really point and make a difference, but they started out there in Jerusalem. It's down there at the bottom of that blue circle, kind of, and then they they went to the coast, and then they apparently traveled by by boat up the coast to Sidon. Okay, now Sidon was pretty close. It's a port city. It's kind of a a, a hub of sorts or you could go and get prepared for a longer journey. So continuing, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. I, I think this is interesting, y'all. This, this seems to be a common theme with Paul. Generally, he, he gets good treatment from the people that are imprisoning him. And I, I think God was giving Paul favor in the eyes of others. He's probably a model prisoner. So people kind of liked him, you know. And putting out to sea from there, we sealed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So Myra is where they switched ships. Um, you can kind of see they, they went all the way up over Cyprus and they came to Myra there. So that's kind of, you know, they went north and west. Uh, by the way, if you're wondering why they're traveling by boat, um, if you consider how difficult it would have been to travel in some of the forested areas, some of the mountainous areas, um, it really just makes sense. And there's, you know, there's bandits were very common. Um, so using ships is really a common sense thing, especially when you're transporting prisoners, because where are they going to escape on a heavily guarded ship? They're not going to. So anyway, Luke writes, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. 
Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasia. So because it was kind of late in the sailing season, they started to deal with some unfavorable winds. And they went south around Crete instead of north, um, possibly because the winds were making it too dangerous to sail without being pushed into the land, basically. So Luke then says they found Fair Havens, which if the place, if the name wasn't intended to be ironic, it sounds like a nice place. You know, Fair Havens, it's a good place to take a break from your sailing. And this, here's, here's where the journey starts to get interesting. Uh, verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, that, that's referring to Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, which takes place annually. Uh, it's, it's either in September or October, depending on um, how the calendar goes. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the, the journey will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Okay, he's trying to talk the centurion out of sailing. But the centurion, it says, um, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. Now, I want you to pause there for a second and ask you this question. Do you really blame the centurion? No. I mean, I mean really, who has more credibility, the owner of the vessel and the professional who captains it or the prisoner, Right? I mean, you can assume that the Holy Spirit is guiding Paul through much of this process. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening here, but the rest of these guys were pretty confident in their expertise. As much as Julius apparently liked Paul, he, he didn't want to, he didn't understand Paul had kind of an inside track to God. And so, it, you know, it's, it's a lot better than job experience. But honestly, uh, I can totally relate to the people not listening to Paul. You probably can too, okay? But friends, God has faithfully provided several ways for his people to know which direction to take in life, okay? And I want you to know this. There, there's, there's if, if you read the, uh, the, it's a wonderful book by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. He talks about how there are four ways that God speaks to us. Speaks to us through scripture, speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, through other mature Christians, and occasionally through circumstances, which is in fact probably the least reliable barometer but God uses these things to speak to us. He's speaking to Paul. we got to remember, he's given us, if we're believers, he has given us his Holy Spirit. And he has given us this, this book that's full of examples, it's full of instruction, and yet too often we ignore the warning signs that he provides. We ignore, just like these sailors, these expert sailors, we think we know best, and so we try to go our own way rather than seek the guidance of the the omniscient, sovereign God of the universe. It's not always our fault when we end up experiencing storms in our lives, but it's probably a lot more common than we really want to admit. Anyway, the centurion uh, ignored Paul's warning in the verse 12. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Has anybody ever lived in a state that starts with an M? Any of y'all? A few? You, you ever had to winterize a boat or, or something, or a car, your home? Um, you know, they not only had to get the boat ready for winter, they had 276 people on this boat that they had to provide lodging for, and uh, apparently Fair Havens just wasn't the right place. So their plan was to take a, a short journey up the island coast and get a better place to, to park the boat for a few months. Um, 
but it didn't work out the way that they had expected. So verse 13, now the south wind blew gently, supposing, that, oh, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to shore. Of course, they couldn't be too shore, you know, too close to the shore because sandbars, because of the rocks, things like that. So they had been a little ways out from the land, and that was probably their undoing uh, because it says soon, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. You've heard of a Northeaster? It's right here in the Bible. They, uh, and, and it struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So here we see that, that the Nor'easter blew them along from the land, and since it would have been pushing them almost the opposite direction from where they wanted to go, they, they had to set their sails intact to have it push them almost directly west because that was better than getting shoved down to the, the north coast of Africa, right? Because that was too far out of the way. So uh, it may not appear very far from this map, but when you consider how big the Mediterranean Sea is, that part that's inside that circle is about the same distance as from Oklahoma City to Houston, okay? But it's all on open water. So this is a big, it's a big area. So they're in the middle of the ocean, as they knew it, and then they're also in, in the middle of a major storm, and this is something that we should remember, okay? The storms will come as predicted. The storms will come. As predicted, remember how frequently we've discussed these passages from, from Timothy and 1 Peter, talking about the trouble that comes upon people who try to live right, who try to serve God with their lives. You know, at, at those times that, that Jesus, another very uh, transparent thing in Scripture, Jesus warned his disciples often about the impending struggles they're going to face. And I want to just say this very clearly, very plainly. Nowhere in the Bible ever are we promised that life on earth is going to be easy. In fact, we're told it's going to be difficult. We're told it's going to be tough. In this world, you'll have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. That's a great promise. Jesus was successful in defeating sin because he refused to give in to temptation. And then he gave his life on the cross to pay for our sins. And then he defeated death by rising from the dead. And he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent and put their trust in him. However, the, the beautiful truths that Jesus has overcome the world and that we are more than conquerors through him doesn't change the fact that the storms will come. But for those who belong to Christ, by God's grace through faith, we have the knowledge that we're not trying to navigate them alone. We're not by ourselves. However, even Christians, too often we, we forget this truth and, and we end up in the same mental space as non-believers. And that's a lot of what we're going to see in the next few verses here. So let's keep going. Uh, running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we manage with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. He, he, here's, he's referring to like a, a smaller vessel. Essentially, it's a big lifeboat that at that point was going to have to be securely uh, lashed to the, the, the regular, the big ship so that it wouldn't like bash into it with the waves. Um, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. This is a lot more of that sailor talk stuff. But for the sake of the message, 
here's, here's what I think Luke is talking about, okay? In ancient times, if ships started to, to look like they might come apart in open water, then sailors would take ropes, and they would figure out, they, they could start from the front, or they could start from the side if, if the wind was blowing the right way. They could run these ropes under the hull of the ship and then fasten them up above the water line to help maintain the, the integrity of the vessel so that it wouldn't break up. And this is something all of us probably try to do in our own lives. We try to hold ourselves together when the storms come, don't we? We try to undergird our hull, so to speak. But can we do that? Can we really, in our own strength, hold ourselves together? Can we? But we try, don't we? We do. We try. Never worked in the past, but for some reason we still think, Maybe it's going to happen this time. We use as many conventional means as possible to keep it together. In our empty desperation, we resort to silly platitudes. Like, in fact, I heard this at your graduation. Uh, you know, God will never give me more than I can handle. That, guys, that is unbiblical, okay? I want to just say that. That is unbiblical and it is very, very provably wrong. God gives us more than we can handle frequently. He does that on purpose. <laughs> Why? To drive us into his arms so that we'll rely on him and stop trying to trust in our own feeble, pathetic strength. But anyway, um, that's one of the first steps that we're going to try when storms come. It's, it's just, it's, it's human nature. Superficial means of support. And they might help for a time, but they can only do so much. Anyway, verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Listen to this foreboding sentence. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Y'all, this, this whole situation obviously went south really, really quickly. There's some amazing similarities between their actions and our actions when we're perceiving that we're sinking. And that's basically we begin to jettison some of the things that we would have considered very important, even, even necessities earlier in the journey. Now, now this, is a, this is a big concept, I think, for us to explore. So we're giving this a slide all its own, okay? Firstly here, we all need to understand that to jettison means to toss something away. It means to cast it off. Okay, to get rid of it, to chuck it over the side of the ship. Because we realize they're weighing us down. They're decreasing our chances of survival. So first I want you to notice that the crew began to toss cargo overboard. Now what was cargo? It's probably the main point of the voyage. You know, it's the purpose of the journey. Cargo would include the goods that were being shipped from place to place for trade purposes. It, it, it may have even been personal items of the passengers. And if you lose those, then most of your, your potential income from the trip just goes right out the window, right? Because your whole reason to be there in the first place is to move cargo. And I think we experience a similar loss when the storms hit because we often have to ditch our perceived means of purpose for survival's sake. I'm going to explain that. Because it's a tough pill to swallow, when you have to jettison your perceived means of purpose. And I think we've all experienced this in some way. At least everybody that's lived to the ripe old age of, say, 35. 
you know. You've probably experienced this. Maybe you were in school to pursue a lucrative career, and, and, but you and your spouse, you found out you're pregnant, and suddenly, you know, you, you, you have to deviate from what you originally had planned, maybe you, what you thought was your path to success or whatever, or maybe the opposite happened. Maybe you, you wanted to, to raise six kids to love the Lord, but instead he, he didn't bless you with any children. Or maybe you were expecting to comfortably retire, and instead you received, or your spouse received a debilitating illness. Whatever it is, that purpose, that goal in mind that we thought we were living for and working towards, sometimes that, that's the first thing to go when the storm comes because we realize that ain't going to happen. This perceived means of purpose gets tossed. At the time, it feels like a tragedy, doesn't it? But in hindsight, I think most of us can look back and say, you know what? God's design for that storm was to pull me in. Anyway, the, the dire nature of the situation that we're in, it becomes evident um, by the facts of what we're having to, to lose. And it, it, it happened here in this story. They're tossing the ship's tackle overboard. And we're not talking about like, you know, lures and bait. I mean, we're talking about the stuff that they use to, to direct the ship. You know, additional logs that would have been masts, pulleys, ropes, sails, navigation equipment, maybe even the furniture from the captain's quarters is just going over the side. Anything heavy that weighed down the ship except the anchors got tossed because they saw it was less important to drive than to survive. I'm going to say that again just in case it escaped you. It is less important to drive than to survive. We want that control, don't we? Having it in the first place is, in fact, an illusion. And when we're facing storms in our own lives, one of the first things to go may be our failed means of self-direction. Perhaps you've bought into that old saying, we make our own luck, you know. Or we act as though everything depends on our own wisdom. Or, or maybe, maybe we've been following our heart, which is really code for or just obeying our flesh, you know, living self-centeredly. That's what following your, following your heart is. Or maybe we've poured everything that we have and everything that we are into other people rather than, than waiting for God's direction, listening to the Holy Spirit. You know, even, even the most noble of pursuits can be sinful if, it's, if we're trying to be you know, the master of my own faith, the captain of my soul. It can be a sin. When the storms come, we recognize that even our best efforts cannot control our present, let alone our future. It's often at this point when we have seen our best laid plans unravel and fail that we come to the same place as these sailors and we abandon our hope. Now, it may sound depressing, but for the unbeliever, there's arguably no better place to get to. Because honestly, if you don't have hope in Christ, your hope's in the wrong thing anyway. We cannot be saved without abandoning hope in everything that we previously trusted in, especially ourselves. 
especially ourselves. And for the Christian, the place where you abandon hope in yourself and in your own capabilities is also a wonderful place to be when we realize we've stopped relying on, on you know, we, we, we say, I, I've stopped relying on God. I'm starting to put my faith in my own wisdom, in my own abilities. When we, when we recognize that, that's sometimes where God says, ha, gotcha, now I'm going to draw you back. And that's a wonderful place to be. you got to understand, this is what the Lord uses to draw us back to the true hope that we have in him through Jesus Christ. You know, the, the author of Hebrews referred to that hope as an anchor for the soul. I love that phrase. An anchor for the soul. Once we get to that place where we have no hope left, that is when God can do his best work within us. Let's pick up at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, I told you so. He stood up and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, now this is really interesting to me because... If you recall correctly, God told Paul already that he was going to testify for him in Rome. You remember this, right? Okay? So Paul knew he was going to make it, but now God has revealed to him that everybody on the ship is going to make it. For this very night, he says, there stood before me an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. <clears throat> Excuse me. And whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. That's pretty cool. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. <laughs> so Paul is apparently a firm believer in good news first, right? <laughs> then bad news, <laughs> okay? But through him, the other sailors and the passengers were able to hear that God was also going to save them from the storm. So, so church, just like the people in this story, okay, we may also have to get to the end of our rope before we really, truly hear his promise, whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time. The question is, what do we do when we finally hear it, when we finally realize that God means it? Well, what have you done with regard to God's word so far? Let's keep going. When the 14th night had come, guys, the, two weeks in a storm, okay? 14th night had come. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. I have no idea how deep that is. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. I know that's less than 20. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. You talk about a foreboding passage. You ever felt like that? Like so hopeless that all you can do is pray for daylight? You know, most of them were so desperate. They're just waiting to drown at this point. And as the sailors are seeking, we're seeking to escape from the ship, and they lowered the ship's, wait a minute, they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, 
unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. There's so much here. How did Paul know that? I mean, there's all these questions, you know, like, like and why would the soldiers trust his word on it? And, and, and how did the sailors react when the soldiers cut loose the boat? You know, I mean, lots of questions, but none of them are as important as asking, why would they get rid of what appeared to be the only way that any of them were going to make it out of this predicament alive? Folks, I think the centurion had seen enough of what Paul's predictions, you know, had come true. I think he was at the place where he was starting to experience a little faith. He was starting to believe Paul and by extension, believe God. See, this is a turning point, okay? I want you to see this. This is a turning point, okay, friends? When, when, when a believer that's stubborn or, or a non-believer, when the tide shifts and, and, and we hear the promise of God and we also believe him, this is a magnificent moment. You might even call it a magic moment. When Jesus says he is the only way to the Father, we must take him at his word. When he says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many and that he would be killed and on the third day rise from the dead and that whoever believes on him has eternal life, we believe him. We believe him. And we recognize that we have to cut loose any other so-called means of salvation that we might be trusting in. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved. Only Jesus. That's it. He said so himself. If we're thinking we've always got some other lifeboat to fall back on, then we've doomed ourselves. Because whether we're, we're trusting in, in some other God or some other system or our own alleged wisdom or goodness, it will fail and we will not receive eternal life. We need to understand that. Listen, friends, you cannot be good enough to earn salvation. But thank God you don't have to because Jesus did it for you. His death was for you. And if you believe, then, then the saving and the cleansing power of his blood is applied to you. Believe and cut loose anything that you're trusting in to save you, anything else, because it can't and it won't. But Jesus will. Only Jesus can. Verse 32, and as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now, honestly, the, the fact that they were listening to Paul at this point as though he were their leader is just incredibly cool. Because remember, Paul was a prisoner. He had no authority at all except spiritual authority. But because he had, he had the ethos of an honest and, and godly man, they believed he was telling the truth. And There's a whole other sermon in this. Might get there sometime, but not today. But 
Anyway, for now, I, just, I want you to recognize how far-fetched Paul's claims must seem to these guys. I mean, an angel appeared to him, you know, the ship being destroyed without a single passenger being lost. None of these, these folks, uh, I shouldn't say none of them, because some of them were sailors. Most of these people, as far as we know, couldn't swim. He even talks about that later. Must have seemed pretty impossible. But to God, you know how that goes. So despite all this, they're tracking with him to the point that they do what he says, and then they take a further step. Listen to this. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, how cool is that, right? He broke it and began to eat, and then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And you read that, and my thought is, what? You know, yeah, they jettisoned their food. I mean, that explains some, some faith in God's words through Paul, doesn't it? And church, listen, this is what we need to understand too. If we really believe the man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, we need to recognize the inferiority of what the world promises to sustain us. It's time to ditch our trust in any other means of sustenance. Now, that's not to say that you should go home and you should dump everything in your fridge and in your pantry into the trash. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, just think about this. We've experienced, even in America, the richest country in, in the history of the world, we've experienced shortages in the grocery store. Things happen. But God is always faithful to provide the things we actually need. There's lots of things we think we need. Toilet paper, eggs, you know. The fact is, God knows what we actually need. And when we rely on worldly means to sustain ourselves without remembering that every good and perfect gift, even our ability to make money, comes from the Father, we, we can slip into this dangerous pattern of serving stuff instead of God. And we need to, we, we've got to stop trusting in our skills or in our job or in the economy or in the government and start recognizing who truly provides and sustains life. Trust in the Lord and he will make sure that your needs are met. All right, this last part takes place here on the map. The, the ship is nearing land. Um, you can see they kind of, the squiggly line, I guess, is to indicate just being pushed along by the winds. But here they finally arrive uh, close to a place called Malta. It's just south and west of the tip of the, you know, Italy's boot there. Um, so we're going to read verse 39 to the end of the chapter. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. The ho then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them swim away and escape, you know, sh should swim away. Now, why? Why is this? 
Remember, the soldiers' lives were tied up with the lives of these prisoners. If they lost them, they were forfeit. Okay? But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And incidentally, okay, this shows that God's will, while God says no one can thwart my will, his will is still worked out through human beings. Okay? Even if they, they don't know that they're being tapped for it. We may not realize that we're God's instruments or God's vessels. Okay? But he still does what he does through us. Anyway, he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, this is awesome for a couple of reasons. First, it shows us that God saves what actually matters. I mean, because what really mattered here in this story, it wasn't the cargo, it wasn't the ship's tackle. It wasn't the lifeboat or the wheat or even the ship itself. It is certainly not the ego of all these professional sailors. It was the people. That's what mattered to God. The 276 precious souls on that ship that God had promised would survive. I want you to think about that. Bless you. How often do we feel all is lost because of what is really just a temporary situation. I've learned to start asking my kids sometimes, I don't do this a lot, but is this trauma or is it drama? You know, Shannon, you need to learn that to say to me, probably. Um, but we do. We, we tend to view something that's so minor as a major tragedy. What, what matters is people. God and people. Nothing else is eternal. Do you realize that? God and those who have been given eternal life have eternity. All this stuff around us is gone. When Jesus comes back, it's gone. It'll be made new. Bless you again. How often do we feel all is lost when it's not? Or the stuff that's lost doesn't really matter. Maybe there's a situation that we're in, and it, it deals with temporary things. Like, like a career, like a relationship, uh, like a financial or, or emotional burden. What really matters in the grand scheme of things is God and people. People's lives and especially their eternal destination, that matters forever. Okay, so that's the first thing we've got to recognize. Secondly, when we read this last paragraph, we get to see God's promise fulfilled. And friends, those who put their, their trust in Christ, do get to see his promises fulfilled. Guys, he cares for us in real time. And he provides inner peace when, when the storms are raging on the outside. And I've experienced this. And I know that many of you have as well. Now listen, I know some of you, you're probably sitting here and you're listening to this message. You're probably, some of you, in the middle of your own storm. You've been feeling beat down by the wind and the waves and and you're just exhausted, and the storm is still raging. And you're longing to see God's promise fulfilled, but maybe you're looking for the wrong thing. Maybe instead of calming the storm, he's going to calm you. Maybe you're at the place you're, you're ready to jettison everything because literally nothing you're doing is working. And I want to challenge you to do just that. Toss away anything that is competing 
for your allegiance and your trust. Chuck it over the side. Turn to the Lord. You know, maybe you're a longtime believer and you just needed the reminder. Maybe you're a person that's never believed, but you're realizing for the first time today because God is opening your eyes to the truth. Listen, there's only one way to heaven, and it's Christ. There's only one way to receive his free gift, and that is by grace through faith. You need to believe on Jesus. Not just believe he existed. Believe on him. Put your faith in him. Let him be your rock. And friends, the Lord will save you. I'm not just talking about from whatever situation you're in. That's irrelevant in the grand scheme of things compared to eternity. He will save you from hell. Accept his free gift. Receive eternal life. If you believe today and you've never gone through the process of being baptized uh, as a believer by immersion, the way the Bible teaches, I, I challenge you to do that today. You've been commanded to do so by Christ himself and to profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To repent of your sins, that means to turn away from them and turn toward God and to walk in obedience. You have a chance to do that this morning. We will happily accommodate you in those things. And if you're just sitting here this morning and you're like, you know what? I've done those things. What's my next step? Maybe you want to join a, a body of believers that wants to walk alongside you and, and share Christ, the life of Christ with you. You can do that today. Or if you're just struggling and you're like, I'm in a storm and I need help and you want prayers, come up here, sit on the front row. We will gladly come and lay hands on you and pray for you. Just don't say no to the Holy Spirit. 